in my opinion, is the primary threat to U.S. supremacy. America won the Cold War against Russia decades ago, but now it faces a new one against China, a nation intent on economic and technological domination across the world. Our guest today is Ali Rahman, CEO of Lexi, the company that's providing the strategic resource needed to power the EV revolution. Ali understands America is losing that war every day it chooses to ignore it. From Ballard Studios in Washington, D.C., it's 13th and Park. The future doesn't belong to the faint party. There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. We will make America strong again. We will get through this together. I can hear So, Ali, welcome to the show. I've got to ask, your mom picked the name Ali. And, of course, we go right to, like, Muhammad Ali. What was she thinking? <laughs> well, I don't know if my mother was the one who chose the name, being a Maronite Catholic lady. <laughs> Ali's not usually in the repertoire of names uh, in that community. In the Arab world, we don't really have, um, you don't, there's no juniors, right? So there are certain names that if your father's named this, then you're named that, right? Mm. So my father's name is Hassan. And then generally, if your father's name is Hassan, Ali is the name that you name your so we're still going to look at you as Muhammad Ali. So just understand that's going to be in our mind's eye through the interview. So uh, again, you know, we're thrilled you're on the show. There's so much to talk about. Justin, take it away. So one of the hot topics right now in the U.S. is electric vehicles. And obviously Tesla has been a tremendous success story. Other major automakers are now making more of their fleets electric. But yet at the same time, China's car industry is also developing electric vehicles, but they've focused on raw materials and refining. Why has there been such a difference between the two countries' approach to EV? It's a great question, Justin, and really one of the animating forces of what I've been doing here in Washington and, and kind of why I got into lithium to begin with. There's been a misallocation, I would say, of economic and political capital here in the West towards the downstream end-use products like the Teslas, the Rivians, products of the EV revolution, and way less capital, again, political and economic, put on the upstream, right? So the access to the raw materials on the capital side. On the political capital side, all the capital has been towards the EV tax credit, solar panel tax credits, all of that stuff. And we don't have an industrial policy here in the United States. And that is why we are in the position that we're in, which is to be behind the Chinese, particularly with access and control over the raw materials that is necessary to actually build those products. So let's go right to it. Why does that lack of an industrial policy towards raw materials here in America, what does that threaten our national security? For years, the refrain in Washington and elsewhere from a national security perspective, when we lived in a hydrocarbon world, which you know we're still in, but as we seek to transition, was reliance on foreign oil. I'm afraid and I think a lot of people who are active in the industry are afraid that we're going to replace that reliance on foreign oil for reliance on the critical minerals and metals necessary to actually build the EV revolution and decarbonization, the energy transition, with China controlling the raw materials required to actually build that stuff. Yeah. It's interesting because you talked about the United States being very reliant on hydrocarbons from other parts of the world. 
Then we had the shale revolution. And so then the U.S. becomes a very large producer of hydrocarbons. And now, if I understand what you're saying correctly, we don't have our own upchain supply or access to the raw materials that are needed for the EV revolution that's taking place. Well, Justin, I mean, we do have these, some of these resources in the U.S., right? We have lithium, we have cobalt, we have some of the raw materials, but we haven't evidenced a willingness to facilitate or to expedite the permitting, the regulatory processes necessary to get a mine for these raw materials up in place in the United States. So it's a seven to 12 year process here in the United States to get one of these mines permitted and up and running. Relying on the U.S., for these raw materials, which is what we're doing, right? So we've created the IRA and some of the other regulatory frameworks that we've put in place do incentivize, have put some sort of an industrial policy in place new. It's nascent, but it, again, it's solely focused on the U.S. Mm-hmm. And that's not enough. Right. It's clearly not what China's doing. I mean, they're looking at every, every other country on earth. And you've talked a lot about this geostrategic importance of things and the competition between America and China. What does that mean? And why is that so important for American decision makers to wake up to and do something about? Remember during the Cold War, right? There was the whole non-allied countries, right? The world was kind of divided into, there were the core constituencies of each, the Soviet Warsaw Pact and our NATO allies. And then there was this whole vast universe of non-allied countries. And and that's likely what's going to happen again. And I think that, you know, the, the, the non-allied countries, the geostrategically one important ones, would be probably for two different reasons. One, maybe by dint of their strategic location, right? So, like, I think of a Panama and Egypt, right? Crossroads, very important logistically. The second will be because of their natural resources, and particularly will be with regards to these critical minerals and metals, but also probably food production and other things like arable land. But let's just keep it within the context of the critical minerals and metals. While we're restricting, you know, what is eligible for IRA, either U.S. projects or countries with which we have a free trade agreement, the Chinese are looking everywhere and making investments everywhere. A lot of these investments are very close to the United States. Oh, in Latin America, absolutely. I mean, again, I'm the CEO of Lithium Energy Exploration, Inc., Lexi. Our assets are in Argentina. Argentina is a place that is a member of the so-called Lithium Triangle, right? A country that has historically been very friendly to the United States. Both countries have recently celebrated more 200 years of relationship. It's not covered under the IRA. And explain the IRA, too. So the, it's, so the Inflation Reduction Act, right, which is the primary legislation that's put in place to incentivize the energy transition. Right. And, and the hallmark of that, the real, as I talked about before, the hallmark of that is the EV tax credit. That's seventy five hundred dollars, which the IRA contemplates as being the primary driver to make that choice to an EV. Right now, to qualify for that seventy five hundred dollar tax credit, there is a staged amount of critical minerals and metals in the battery of those that need to come from either the U.S. or countries with which we have a free trade agreement. That's only Chile. Okay. That doesn't include Bolivia or, or Argentina. doesn't include Peru, where ostensibly there's some lithium, possibly Brazil, where they're hard rock mining lithium. So we have now excluded from the IRA this vast territory. But that could be solved by having a free trade agreement with those other countries. 
right? Because if there is a free trade agreement, then the IRA would apply to them. Absolutely. But the free trade agreements, as you know, are, are not quick right. no. hits. They're not. They just signed a, I guess, a quasi-free trade agreement with Japan mm-hmm. recently that caused a lot of agita on, the, on, on Capitol Hill for the way in which the administration went and did that. Mm-hmm. Again, with the express purpose of Japanese qualifying for the IRA. But, I mean, Japan doesn't produce these critical minerals and metals. Right. Lithium. Mm-hmm. How is it used and what's the importance of it? It's the lithium-ion battery for a reason, right? It's the uh, vast majority, 70% more or less of the value of a battery is lithium. Mm-hmm. And so it's the really the underlying product material necessary to build the EVs, but also to build the batteries required for renewable energy. You need to have these battery storage, right? Storage. For when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow. Who owns the lithium? The big reserves of lithium in the world. So China only has a small percentage mm-hmm. of that, right? Yeah, but, so but they, have, they need to go out and get it. Absolutely. They, right? they have the vast majority of the refining capacity, oh. which is also super important in this story. But in terms of the raw material, where is the lithium? The lithium triangle in Australia. Now, interestingly, in Australia, the Chinese are the major owners of the lithium resources in Australia. So you've been warning policymakers of late that the Chinese digital currency, the version of the one, could ultimately threaten the supremacy of the U.S. dollar, especially in trade. We're going to cut to a clip from CNBC. Love to get your comments on that. Who would you say has got the lead in the race to build out a central bank, a global central bank digital currency? Oh, without question, China. Let's let's make that as clear as possible. China is ahead in all of financial technology by a decade. By a decade. Mm-hmm. That's a long time in, in giving someone a, a lead in a race, right? How serious could this become for us? My point is less about the digital currencies, though clearly that is an absolutely key element here. But in terms of the the loss of the dollar as the reserve currency of the world, which in my opinion is the primary threat to U.S. supremacy. That is our greatest geopolitical risk. And, you know, we're exacerbating that, in my opinion, with a number of different policies, including not least of which is sanctions. And what we've done with this sanctions policy is created an alternative hydrocarbon market where China and India and others buy their oil discounted, right, 30 to 40% off the retail price, the price that Americans pay for their oil, refine that product, and then sell it back to Europe or the United States. Again, at full retail price on the value-added products. Hell of a business model. It's a hell of a business. By the way, we impose that on ourselves through the, through the sanctions policy. But the way in which sanctions work is prohibiting the use of the U.S. monetary system. So when you sanction the in aggregate just the size of the economies and the economic activity that we've sanctioned thus far, you've incentivized people to move away from the U.S. economic system. And again, part of that story is the Chinese and the yuan and the digital renminbi, right? It's one thing when you're competing with the Soviet Union and the ruble is essentially worthless. What what, what are you going to buy with the ruble, right? But if the, the Chinese now are making or asking that they can pay for that oil in the renminbi, right? And the countries are actually accepting this now because the renminbi, you can buy things with it. 
And then if they do that, they're on the hook, right? They're the, I mean, now they're, they're in that system and they're, they're in that the channel. System. That's it's it. It's the infrastructure. Again, right. creating this infrastructure, we, the West, created the hydrocarbon infrastructure, and hence we benefited from it. We now are at risk of having somebody else create that decarbonized ecosystem. So what's your advice, your simple advice about how to fix this? How do we go about starting to turn this ship around? Because clearly this ship is coming right at us and Hmm. probably not with friendly intent. If the process of decarbonization and the energy transition is really about ameliorating the existential threat of climate change, then why are we putting up these barriers, right? Why are we going to self-segregate the world and make countries choose? We need to be collaborating on developing these resources and in developing the technologies necessary to de-industrialize. That's our best path forward. Ali, tell us a little about your personal background. How did you end up (laughs) in the lithium business? I'm not a geologist. I'm not a geochemist. (laughs) Just like when I was in the, and still am in the hydrocarbon business to an extent. I'm the son of a, a diplomat. I grew up here in Washington. I grew up inside, let's say, the Beltway with friends whose parents were senators and congressmen. And I got into it from geostrategy, right? So we created the hydrocarbon world, and oil was the most important strategic commodity in the world. Still still is, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so that's why I got into that business. And, and you know, I had an incredible opportunity to take over as CEO of Lexi. Just looking forward, if we're really going to do energy transition, if the, we're really going to decarbonize, then these minerals and metals, particularly lithium, will be the new oil. So you're a senior fellow at the Jack Gordon Institute for Public Policy. Mm-hmm. You talk to students all the time, right? What are you telling the next generation that they can feel good about some of the things that you're warning us to get off our duff and get at are going to work out? The capacity of the U.S., when we're really focused on something, to act and to win is unparalleled, right? And so if we do recognize, if we do act, I have no doubt that we can compete. In the here and now, this is a a geopolitical threat, not just between two superpower competitors, but maybe for control of the things that are vital to quality of life. We wish you well in the journey. We wish you great success. We hope that you're able to compel policymakers, especially here in the United States, to make this a front burner issue, not just a concern, but a front burner issue, and to do what you just asked for, to take action. Thanks again for being with us. Great show. Thanks, Ali. Justin, that was a wake-up call. (laughs) Sure was. Wow, what an interesting topic. Yeah, I love the analogy to... Lithium is the new oil. Yeah. And for some reason, the U.S. isn't where it should be vis-a-vis China. And I'm hopeful that there can be progress made. I mean, certainly Ali is on the forefront of that to ensure that the U.S. is going to have an adequate supply of these needed materials. All this that he's talking about, a lot of what he's talking about, will take place, the next part of this, in our backyard. When I say that, I'm talking about the Americas, right? right? Why is it we have any reticence, the United States, about pulling the Americas together almost as one, as best we can, to pull in common purpose on things like this, like strategic reserves and minerals, to help ensure that we're not at the mercy of a, a power downstream we'll have no control over? 
Yeah, it's remarkable. I mean, we've got these countries, I think he said 70% of the world's reserves of lithium are in the lithium triangle there. And those three Latin American countries, right. Argentina being one of them. And yet it doesn't sound like the U.S. has been as active there as has China. And again, it's in our own hemisphere. We've talked on the show, of course, about all the reserves and natural resources in Africa. It was blowing our mind right. that we weren't doing more to cement alliances or and make new ones in, in the African continent out of shared purpose, right? We have not been doing that the way we should have been doing it for decades, I think it's fair to say. And now in our own backyard, right. we're seeing more evidence that we're not doing. What are we waiting for? You know, I don't know, because he also mentioned that the refining is done in China. So they're sourcing these materials. I didn't know that. Yeah, they're sourcing these materials in our hemisphere, shipping them back to China, refining them in China. From my perspective, that seems like a little bit of a shot across the bow, kind of sending a message to the world that they can flip the switch. The Chinese government can flip the switch on. They can flip the switch off when it comes to some of these really important minerals and metals that we need to fund the non-carbon energy revolution. Okay, so this is going to... <laughs> Tell you exactly what I've been focused on these okay. last few days. So I think about Taiwan mm -hmm. and how everyone's concerned about China, mainland China, going in and trying to militarily take over Taiwan. Right. I think that's a shiny piece of metal that they're dangling out there for everyone to pay attention to. The real war is already on. The war that's on is a war for these resources or to share in these resources that will drive the future. And the crazy thing about all this, Justin, it's in the plan. Yeah, they, they literally write these right. five-year plans and 25-year plans. If you read the plan, they plan and then they work the plan, right? right. This is part of the plan to, to try to create that kind of new geostrategic alliance around the world. And they're doing it economically, starting with the true resources that will drive the future. It is remarkable. And you're right. They're doing it in plain sight. And it's not really clear what the U.S. approach is, but I will say that, you know, Donald Trump as president did some things and reoriented U.S. policy vis-a-vis -vis China in ways that the Biden administration has not changed, whether it comes to tariffs or some of the other economic policies and trade policies towards China. And he was really the first president to do that. There's a lot of talk by previous presidents. He did that. And to President Biden's credit, he's kept in place many of those Trump policies towards China. I think that uh, Congress is now focused on this on a number of different levels. There's a China Select Committee. There's a China Committee, China right. Select Committee in the right. House. So I think that maybe a day late, but I think that the policymakers in Washington, I think, are hopefully catching up to the situation. I can't think of a more important potential threat to the Western world, it's not just the United States, to the Western world, than one nation, China, basically taking, economically taking over the world. And the whole talk, Justin, about the currency and about how strategic reserves have been based on the U.S. dollar, right. and now that may be a foundation that's shaking. We should probably have another show on the whole issue of digital currencies and the difference between what the Chinese are doing and the approach that the U.S. government is taking. Well, the message is clear. Let's get going. Let's, uh, let's wake up and get going. And Ali was great. I like the fact I'm always going to look at him, of course, as somewhat related to Muhammad Ali. <laughs> I hope he, he's able to play the game that way because uh, we need a champion. We now. need a champion for sure.
Don't miss future episodes by following us on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast platforms, or go to the YouTube channel where you can subscribe for free. 